The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Indian cricket, Brexit shenanigans, and BlackRock voting rights. Welcome back to The Views Room. I'm your host, Amy Donlan, coming to you from Canary Wharf in London. The broadcasting rights of Indian cricket have been sold for $6.2 billion. But there was no outright winner. Domestic tycoon Mukesh Ambani secured the digital broadcasting rights for the next five years, while Disney, which was the previous outright owner, only managed to hold on to the television rights. The split will allow Ambani to strengthen his streaming service, while the Mickey Mouse creator is likely to lose ground in the world's sixth largest economy. Meanwhile, Britain is seeking to dismantle parts of the Brexit agreement. Despite signing a deal with the European Union in late 2020, Boris Johnson unveiled legislation this week that will allow him to scrap parts of the pact that governs trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. But far from needing a helping hand, the region's economy is outperforming the rest of the UK. Scrapping a legal agreement, however, will create uncertainty that could reverse Northern Ireland's success. Lastly, BlackRock is encouraging its customers to get voting. The fund titan that manages some $10 trillion of assets is ceding control of some of the voting rights that come with company shares it manages on clients' behalf. But there's just one problem. Investors have previously proved that they don't want the hassle. But finding a way of sharing this burden is important to boss Larry Fink, as company voting has become increasingly political. First up, Una Galani chats to Anthony Curry about broadcasting rights of India's Premier League cricket. Next, Peter Tal Larson and I discuss Britain's plan to dismantle its Brexit deal with the European Union. Then, John Foley beams in from New York to debate the merits of BlackRock's plan to share voting rights. Thanks, Amy. Thanks, folks. So I'm Anthony Curry. Uh, I'm one of the editors of Breaking Views down in Melbourne. Uh, joining me on uh, the segment today, I've got Yuna Galani, who is based in India. Yuna, welcome back to the Views Room. Thank you. We're going to delve into the wonderful world of cricket. And obviously, a lot of people here in Melbourne will tell me this is the home of all things great about cricket. I'm sure virtually any city in India where you go to, you know, you'll get the same thing. Whichever is right, we've been experiencing a lot of high drama in the sport. And no, I'm sorry, guys, I'm not talking about the fact that England has finally won not just one test match, but in fact, an entire series, as surprising as that may be to some people. The action we're actually watching is in the Indian Premier League, or to be more specific, the auction for the rights to broadcast the competition. These just went for a cool $6.2 billion, about 150% more than was shelled out the last time they went under the hammer around five years ago. You know, you've got a couple of really interesting ways of looking at this, but just for the purposes of our listeners who might not know the Indian Premier League as well as you do, just briefly give us a rundown of, of how this thing works and uh, and why it's so important, apart from the fact, of course, that cricket is awesome. Obviously, cricket in India is right up there with politics and religion. It's just an unescapable fact of life. But unlike Down Under and in the UK, where sort of Cricket is a very sombre affair, you know, it's in all whites and it's a sort of everybody takes their time. And even when it's in the T20 format, it's it's, it's pretty sombre affair. In India, the Indian Premier League is this sort of flash brash cricket tournament that's played out over the two hottest months of the year between 10 teams and uh, hottest, sweatiest, most humid. And it's sort of more like it's inspired a bit more by the Super Bowl than it is by any global cricket tournament you know you have crowds of 100 
a crowd of 100,000 people turned out to watch the uh, Gujarat Titans, which is the new team owned by the European buyout firm CVC, beat the Rajasthan Royals in their debut season to lift the lift the title. And so, you know, this is like really like, as you would expect in India, it's sort of, it's just a, a big family event with lots of colour and it happens to also be the hottest ad property in the country. That's the intriguing thing, isn't it? I mean, the fact you get that many people showing up are in the hottest months of the year is, to, to me, that's almost almost crazy. Um, but then again, you know, anything over sort of 15 degrees Celsius, and I'm a typical I wilt. This is a really rather intriguing way of looking at the game, though, isn't it? That it's, it's just a two-month competition, just 10 teams, and yet it commands so much attention. And these rights that just, uh, just went under auction, like you said, it's it really sort of puts a, a seal on how important the game has become. But the CBC is involved. That's intriguing in itself. Is that just a sign that, along with the rights, that money's taking over the sport, as it is with so many other sports? Yeah, I mean, you know, as, as well as your sort of Bollywood and tycoon sort of individual sort of trophy asset owners, uh, what's really interesting about the Indian Premier League or the IPL is that you have about one third of the companies that are owned through listed companies. CVC's entry into the uh, into team ownership in October last year when they auctioned off two new teams so they wrote they, the league went from eight to ten it was a very mm. interesting moment because what it effectively did is it was a sort of big external endorsement of the financial sustainability of these franchises like the thing you know unlike in a lot of other competitions like football or soccer Premier League in, in the UK you know you have you you've only got 10 teams there's no relegation risk you know you don't even the tournament's so short you don't have to even invest in your own stadium you know there's a, there's there's team player salary caps so it's actually like you know most of the teams are, are earning sort of 10 to 20 percent net profit margin so it's actually a really really well designed sport and that explains a little bit and it, and it helps people like Mukesh Ambani, India's richest man, to justify owning a team like the Mumbai Indians through his massive listed company, which is, of course, Reliance Industries. So, sorry, so Reliance owns it. It's not him. He, he's not some trophy asset he's got for himself. It's actually owned by, his, by one of his companies. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we've got CVC, we've got Reliance, but they're not the only corporations involved in owning the teams. No, of course. And, and the, I mean, the other big one that really stands out to me is, is Diageo. You know, they inherited the team when they effectively bought United Spirits, which was the drinks business of Vijay Malia, um, a sort of a colourful Indian tycoon who uh, which the Indian authorities are now trying to extradite from London because he because of his debt problems. But, you know, they inherited the Royal Challenge of Bangalore, which is a sort of and they've kept it and they've had it for, the, for about the past decade and they've held on to this team and it's become more and more valuable and it's gone from being something like you know a just sort of add-on in a deal which nobody probably ever thought twice about to being worth about 10 percent of the listed 10 percent or more now with the rights deal of the value of the listed uh, united spirits which is the sort of indian listed company that they bought so it's you know there's a lot of value to unlock within the league there are other teams as well that need to be sort of that might be spun off as a result of this rights deal. But you know, the really big battle here is between Reliance and Disney because they are the rights owners now. 
So they're, they're the ones who, who won the auction. So let's just take a step back in. And so the auction five years ago, Disney won that one outright, okay? But didn't they? They, they had rights to everything. Yeah. Uh, through their Indian, which was Star India. So now it's been split between two different companies. Yeah, and what's really interesting now is that so Reliance has come in, Mukesh Ambani has come in, and he has bid very aggressively to win the digital rights. He's plonked about $3 billion down on those. And Disney has come in and spent $3 billion, and they have managed to retain the sort of broadcast television rights. Now, what you've sort of set up here is a sort of like make or break between these two companies. I mean, Disney, for, for a start, is likely to lose millions of subscribers for its streaming platform in India as a result of losing the streaming rights to the IPL because cricket is that important it's it underpinned the offering and and that's important for Disney because India accounts for something like one third of their global streaming subscribers so this is not a small thing right so so even though they've won some of the rights okay the tv rights for regular terrestrial tv i'm assuming or cable tv they cannot put it on their disney plus platforms exactly anywhere around. Yeah. wow that's ouch that's gotta hurt and and then and then on the other side of this you have Mukesh shambani who is known for being incredibly aggressive when he launches new businesses and he's had a streaming platform for the last four years uh, you know in partnership with what's now Paramount, um, it's called Viacom 18. And, and that's been sort of going along without really doing very much. But in the last year alone, he has picked up the rights to multiple sporting competitions around the world for the Indian rights, you know, the NBA, La Liga, the, uh, mm. I think it's the, the uh, you know, the list goes on, and, and now the IPL. And he is probably going to now go very, very hard and heavy in promoting his streaming platform. And he doesn't just have a streaming platform. He has a streaming platform with access to 400 million mobile phone subscribers through wow. his telecom service. And, you know, in India, you know, we don't just watch videos on our big screen at home. Uh, you know, the, the mobile phone is effectively a television for many, many people. And he right. also happens to offer the cheapest data plans in the entire world. So... When you put it all together, it does feel to me, at least, that this is going to be the moment where digital adoption in India, which has already been going at a blistering pace, will, will accelerate even further to the point where terrestrial television will never catch up with the penetration rates that you have in the US and elsewhere for that, that sort of, uh, and, and even in China. Well, so it's, it's almost like you're saying um, Disney's basically just forked over three billion for a dying business for its dying business, or to keep its dying business alive a bit longer. I'm sure it's not quite that bad, but that's and that's an, an astounding way of thinking about how the stream business is working. Of course, behind that is advertising revenue, I would assume, or the ability to charge even more for a premium service to avoid advertising revenue. I mean, this this puts Ambani in a really really lucrative yeah. position. I mean, the most dangerous thing here for Disney and, and all other streaming platforms in India now is that Ambani effectively doesn't care, at least in the short term, if he does or doesn't make a profit here. He has his streaming, his, his media companies have, have openly declared in the last month or so that, you know, that they don't expect this to be a positive contributor mm. to their profit for some time. And that is, for me, 
and Barney slash Reliance speak for hold on to your horses, guys. This is going to be quite a match. Well, that's incredible. But but you did also say, I mean, beyond Reliance, it's worth saying this again. I think you said at the beginning, Reliance also owns the team. Right? So there's a bit of a conflict of interest going there. But also you were saying earlier on that you, know, that you, you see the auction results as a way of unlocking value and even giving a, giving a reason for the companies which own these teams to think about spinning them off or selling them. Just just talk us through why you think the auction will make that happen, will, will make that more likely than not. Yeah, I mean, to be clear that, you know, someone someone like Reliance Industries, they're not going, yeah, and Barney's not going to probably sell his team because he doesn't need to because he has a $240 billion company. So CVC paid something like $750 million for their team. So this is really a drop in the ocean for them. But for many others, the rights is a mo- the rights auction is the moment where you're crystallizing your revenue for the next five years. And that gives team owners a chance to say, okay, this is a time when we need to spin off or bring in outside investors or do something more and and people can come in with much better visibility on what the you know what the franchise is worth at least for the mm. next years but you know that, that with the, such a big uplift teams effectively keep about 40 percent of the you know the 6.2 billion dollars that's it's a, it's a big it's a it's a big chunk of money and i think as you as you uh, put in one of your pieces about this also the the merchandising uh behind the ipl really hasn't or even in India, particularly in general, hasn't really picked up in the way you'd you'd see in, well, name your Western country with sports. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. So the franchise, the the rights revenue still is about 70% of the overall revenues of all these teams. Over time, you know, merchandise, ticketing, events, and things like that will pick up, but those will be a slow burn. So the rights are the most important thing in in the in, in, it's everything that yeah. drives the sort of financials of this tournament right i suppose with that now locked in if you're a diageo or even a reliance or, or anyone else you, uh, owning a team you can look at this and say you know what it's not core to our business we can now point to five years of fantastically more revenue than we had before so any more cbc like buyers in there come on in absolutely well you know thanks so much for talking us through that Always great to talk about cricket and marrying it with finance and corporations makes it even more fun. Thanks so much. I'm sure as this develops, we'll come back and take another look at it. Thanks again. Thanks so much. Welcome back. I'm Peter Thalarsen, the global editor of Breaking Views, and I'm being joined by Amy Donnellan. And we're talking about the United Kingdom and Northern Ireland. Amy, good to talk to you. You too. So uh, tell me what's going on here. The, 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 we've been talking, it feels like for years, well, it is years, about the Brexit deal and the conundrum of Northern Ireland and relations between the UK and Northern Ireland and, and the Republic of Ireland. But, you know, for people who maybe haven't been following this as closely as you have, there was sort of the impression that this had all been fixed, that Boris Johnson had agreed a deal a sort of Northern Ireland protocol. And then subsequently, that sort of cleared the way for for, for doing a Brexit deal. That deal was, I think, agreed uh, at the end of 2020. So um, why is the UK government trying to rip it up now? Well, it is an interesting situation. And as you say, the Brexit deal was done. It was agreed to by the UK and the European Union. Britain left uh, the EU. But this Northern Irish situation has always been problematic. And it's because 
of something called the Northern Irish Protocol, which was sort of a compromise that had to happen because as Britain left the EU, uh, obviously Northern Ireland was still part of, of the United Kingdom. And as a result of that, you had the Republic, which was part of the EU, and then obviously a different market. So the obvious thing would have been to do would be to create border checks between those two different areas. But obviously there had been historic violence between Protestants and Catholics in Northern Ireland. And that all came to an end in 1998 with the Good Friday Agreement. And basically nobody wants to go back to that. And it was seen as if you did create those those border checks, it would revive that violence. So all sides basically agreed that a compromise needed to happen. And essentially what that compromise was, was that basically checks needed to then happen between goods that were coming from Great Britain, so England, Scotland, Wales, uh, coming into Northern Ireland. And those checks were quite onerous. They required a huge amount of documentation. And they they seemed to, well, what the British government said was that they were having a kind of chilling effect uh, on trade between Great Britain and Northern Ireland. And that, so that's, that's what Boris Johnson says, right? But yes. But- I mean, you've been looking at the numbers, and is that actually true? You can definitely say that there were there were issues that were created between trade, that, that it sort of put off some people who were in Great Britain and owned companies sending goods to Northern Ireland because it was proving too costly. But actually what Northern Ireland appears to have done, and as certainly the data seems to suggest, is the economy is actually doing very well. In fact, in the third quarter of last year, it outperformed all other regions in Great Britain. So its economy grew by 1.4% versus the previous quarter, and England only grew by 0.6%. So it seems that Northern Ireland is sort of making the best of this situation, which is that they're actually sort of in two markets. So they are in the British market and they're also in the single market. And they've also been exporting a huge amount to the Republic. So they have they have export exports were up 65 percent in 2021 from Northern Ireland to the Republic, and that was worth four billion euros. So they're finding new supply chains and they're finding new customers. So you can't really argue that Boris Johnson is doing this to the benefit of Northern Ireland's economy. Um, No, but but I think what you can argue, I I suspect, is that that what he's doing now actually may they undermine some of those gains, right? Because absolutely, I mean, as I understand it, they've basically now they've introduced some legislation, proposed legislation, which would allow the UK to suspend parts of the the, the Northern Ireland deal that it agreed. Um, the same government is basically under undermining its own agreement, which is an international treaty. But I mean, there's a question about when that whether that legislation actually ever gets 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 implemented because it needs to go through various steps in the House of Lords in the UK and there's going to be a big fight about it and so forth. But but I guess what you could say is if you're invest if you're planning to invest in Northern Ireland at this moment, you might look at that and say, hmm, let's hold off and see what happens. Absolutely. I mean I think if you're any business now operating in Northern Ireland, you have to think that as this as this legislation has been introduced, um, the it, it now basically comes down to what the EU has to respond to it. So what retaliation is the EU going to to implement if Britain goes ahead with this and actually does what it's suggesting it will do? One of the things that it can do is actually not check, basically allow goods to come in from Great Britain and not check them. Uh, So that would be goods going into the single market that wouldn't be subject to European Union checks. 
Um, so there is obviously, there will have to be sort of repercussions for that. Now, again, if this were to go to the absolute extreme, and I think most people don't think this would happen, but if it were to go to the extreme, a border would have to be created between the Republic and Northern Ireland. And as I said, that violence restarting would be a huge risk. Although that's unlikely, if you are a business that's maybe thinking about investing in Northern Ireland, setting up a call centre or manufacturing, that would be in the back of your mind. So absolutely, this could have sort of the chilling effect on the Northern Irish economy that, that Britain has talked about. This could actually, in a way, do that. Yeah, so a self-fulfilling prophecy. All right, Amy, uh, I'm sure this is something that we will come back to from time to time. So appreciate the update and uh, good to talk to you. You too. Voting is a sacred rite of passage to many people, something they guard carefully. But actually, BlackRock appears to want to share some of the voting rights it has with its clients. Here to talk to me about it is John Foley, who's coming in from New York. Hi, John. Hi, Amy. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Well, I mean, anything that BlackRock does is sort of interesting because it's obviously this huge fund titan that manages like $10 trillion. So interesting to see what they're doing in general. But this is quite an interesting story. So, John, tell us basically how this all works so far up until this point. What? How does BlackRock vote on behalf of its clients? Well, so BlackRock has $10 trillion worth of investments, other people's money, and about half of that is in stocks through things like index funds, you know, tracker funds, ETFs, this kind of thing, um, which it sells to people like us, but also to institutions. And there's always been a slight wrinkle with this whole system, which is that BlackRock owns the shares on our behalf. So it gets to vote when shareholder meetings come around, even though it's us who put in the money and who take the losses if the shares go down, just as we take the gains if the shares go up. So what BlackRock is doing is it's saying, we would like to give you the option, you the investor, the option to have more say over how the votes that we currently cast at annual meetings are deployed. Um, it's like it, they're doing it in a very small, very measured way. So at the moment, they're just saying to some institutions, you know, big pension funds and so on, would you like to decide how the votes in these companies that we hold on your behalf are cast? But Larry Fink, the boss of BlackRock, said this week that what he would like is a world where basically all individual shareholders, so even again, like you and me, can have some decision-making role when it comes to casting votes in these companies, which would change everything. Because at the moment, BlackRock casts you know, a huge, sometimes decisive vote on issues, on telling companies what to do, how their boards should look, how they should respond to climate change. And the idea of giving some of that power back to individual investors is quite dramatic change. And is this because... I guess, as you say, that the climate change, diversity issues, these things are becoming very kind of hot button topics and political. And are they sort of, does Larry think sort of think that they're sort of tainting BlackRock as in making it look like it's sort of a political organization when the, he doesn't want it to look like that? Yeah, it's interesting because power, you know, power is a is a strange thing. Like BlackRock wants it and has it. Larry Fink wields enormous power because BlackRock has these huge voting stakes uh, in companies, not just BlackRock, but also other index fund providers like State Street and Vanguard. If you look at a company like McDonald's, which has recently been fighting against Carl Icahn, an activist who had a an animal welfare based challenge, he wanted to put some directors on the board. Um, 
BlackRock, State Street and Vanguard have together 20% of McDonald's shares. So how they vote matters. And in this case, they voted against the activists. So power is very valuable, but it also can be, you know, it's a mixed blessing because BlackRock is increasingly being accused of having an agenda. You know, BlackRock boss Larry Fink has said repeatedly that he, he thinks sustainability is important, that companies should be kind of on the right side of history. But that's winning BlackRock enemies among people who say, why are you making a decision on things that are, quote, political issues? Like, you could argue that climate change isn't really political, but it's definitely a fact that more supposedly political issues are coming up in shareholder meetings in the US. And that's not an accident. It's actually because the, the SEC, the Securities and Exchange Commission, made it easier last year through tweaking some of its kind of guidance made it easier for proposals that have broad societal impact to come to a vote. So BlackRock, you can see why, they're not saying this, but you can see why BlackRock doesn't want to be asked to take a view on more ideological issues or things that are perceived to be political. I suppose on the face of it, you can understand it looks more democratic is, is sort of the approach. But how does this work out in practice? As in, how do retail investors typically operate when it comes to AGMs? Are they big voters? Are they active? They engage? Right. So this is the big problem because BlackRock has, say BlackRock has two kinds of clients that this applies to. One is institutions, you know, companies that invest on behalf of the people already. Um, and then the rest is retail investors. So us, again, like you and me, individuals. So institutions, they vote. They either, either BlackRock votes for them or they vote themselves, but the turnout at meetings, you know, not physical turnout because people don't necessarily go to them in person anymore, is really high. It's over 90%. Now, BlackRock can hand back power to some of those institutions and they may use it. They may also, though, just delegate it to some of these firms called proxy advisors like Glass Lewis and ISS who do lots of analysis and come up with recommendations of how companies should behave. So BlackRock may hand power back to institutions, but they may then hand that power on to someone else. So you may get just a different kind of the same problem. Retail investors, though, the problem with retail investors is that they don't seem to vote even when they have the chance. So turnout among retail investors is about 30%, which is low and it's not changing. Even though you have all these new ways to vote, apps, facial re recognition technology, that means you don't have to enter long code numbers. Um, there's a company, Broadridge, that handles a lot of this kind of stuff. And they are making it much easier for individual investors to vote using their smartphones. But they're not doing it. Retail investors just don't seem to care very much about how those votes are cast, possibly for good reason, because they may just think, well, my vote doesn't matter because the company's just going to do what it wants anyway, which often is true. But the issue is that BlackRock not only needs to give away power to retail investors, but hopefully we need to make retail investors more inclined to use that power when they get it. Do you think that that is likely or are we are we more likely to see sort of a dilution of BlackRock's power and therefore companies may maybe get away with things that they previously wouldn't had BlackRock decided not to do this? Well, that is the risk that companies just do whatever they want. Now, the reality is that companies kind of do whatever they want anyway. We've had some recent examples of companies just disregarding what shareholders, including BlackRock, have told them to do. So one example would be Twitter, where, where shareholders failed to re-elect a board member, Egon Durban, um, who works for Silver Lake, a private equity firm. But the board of Twitter just said, you know what, Like, thanks for the recommendation, shareholders, but we're going to keep Egon on anyway, which is their right. Another example is JP Morgan, which had a vote on its executive pay, just paid its chief executive something like $84 million, and shareholders overwhelmingly said no to that. 
but the board was like, well, thanks again for your advice, but you know, we're just going to go ahead with it because that's again our right. So there is a risk that companies just have even more license to behave the way they want. Like the the point really is that this is a slow shift. So you need to educate retail investors. You need to make them make it easy for them to vote, and you need to make them believe that their vote matters. And hopefully, we move, we can move to a world where BlackRock can hand back power, and retail investors will want to use that and feel that it has an effect when they do. Absolutely. Well, watch this space. Thank you very much for that, John. Very interesting. Thanks, Amy. Thanks for tuning in. This podcast was produced by Amanda Gomez in New York. Subscribe to The Views Room and our sister podcast, The Exchange, on Acast, Megaphone, or wherever you like to listen. Check out our latest views on these stories and many others at BreakingViews.com and on Twitter, where our handle is at BreakingViews.